and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hank, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Usama Himani, CIO at The Firm. In this week's episode, we take a look at the world of sovereign advisory, a relatively small group of experts that act as financial advisors to governments, often in times of crisis. To walk us through this topic, our guest this week is Jill Dorchi, who has acted as a trusted advisor to more than a dozen countries in Europe, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. After a career that has included Swiss Bank, UBS, and Milstein & Co., Jill founded her own firm, the Potomac Group. Jill also serves as an external expert to the IMF in the Monetary and Capital Markets Department and is a member of the Principles Consultative Group and the Committee for Debt Transparency of the Institute of International Finance. Thanks, Paul, for this introduction, and, um, and, and many thanks, Jill, for taking the time to, to talk to us. Always a pleasure to, to chat and exchange ideas with you. Before going into the topic, maybe we can spend a few minutes chatting about your role. What, what exactly is sovereign advisory? I think a lot of people who are, who are outside the, 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 the financial world don't, don't always fully understand what, what your role exactly involves. Sure. It's a, it's a very small field of professionals, so it's no wonder that people really don't come across us in, in their everyday uh, dealings. Um, it's a small group of professionals that uh, specializes in providing financial advice to governments, um, particularly in times of crisis or uh, distress. Um, you know, governments have their normal banking relationships uh, with uh, investment banks and, and other investors, uh, but sometimes they feel that they need uh, a trusted advisor to help them navigate, uh, particularly in times of crisis. Um, so we specialize in, in providing that advice. It's uh, often we work hand in hand with the IMF or World Bank, uh, but we are, uh, it's important to underscore that it's private sector and we're looking to protect the long-term interests of the government. So Jill, sovereign debt restructuring, whilst being very important for investors, both on the fixed income and the equity side, is pretty niche and it's it's quite a complex area. For people unfamiliar, could you take us through the restructuring process and maybe the different types of restructuring? And separately, could you shed some light on um, you know a, a bit of both sides of the negotiation? For example, how do governments prioritize under stress and how do you reach an agreement with, with various creditors? There are two broad categories of countries, those that have market access and those that are lower income uh, and don't have regular access to the markets. So for a market access country, usually when they're um, needing extra financing, they just they just go to the markets. And if they're needing to refinance or roll over their debts, uh, they, they have that uh, ability to tap the capital markets. But in times of distress, whether that's um, from an external shock or from internal factors, uh, those markets either become too expensive or close completely. Uh, and that's when a government needs to sit down with their creditors and come up with a new repayment plan. So for, for countries that have outstanding bonds, uh, and that can be in the domestic market as well as the international market, they'll sit down with those creditors, which are usually then formed into a representative committee, and they will renegotiate new terms and conditions uh, for repaying their obligations. Um, 
often that is also in lockstep with some other uh, negotiations, either with the IMF or other creditors. Now for lower income countries that may not have a lot of outstanding bonds or, or no outstanding bonds, they fund themselves through either multilateral institutions, uh, other sorts of loans, or they have um, bilateral relationships with other countries. Uh, and most, you know, in, in recent times, that's mainly with China or um, you know, other large creditor countries. Uh, and so in times of distrust there, they will have to sit down and, and renegotiate. And in those cases, when you have a lot of bilateral creditors, other countries, it's usually a coordinated effort. And again, it's usually done under the context of an IMF program or a kind of global effort to address uh, the country's difficulties. So on, on this issue of the, of the role of the IMF here, I think it's, it's interesting that, that you mention it. Are there, you know, can, you know, have there been instances, uh, first of all, why is the IMF necessary in this case? I mean, the, presumably there are instances where that has re been restructured without an IMF program. Are there, are there really differences in the success here? I mean, and, and what role does the IMF exactly play other than advise the government? Is it, is it something that, that creditors, private creditors look for or who, what's their role exactly? The role of the IMF, well, there's many. One is that they're coming in usually as some sort of creditor uh, themselves and as that lender of last resort. So there's some sort of stabilizing factor for the country. But in these debt negotiations, often the role of the IMF is important because it gives a common set of figures or data that both sides will kind of use in their analysis. So it kind of sets the playing field. It, it, it also helps both sides um, agree to a level of transparency about what the government's finances are. Um, so there are cases, like you say, that they don't have an IMF program or the IMF is not involved, but those are usually also the more difficult cases because creditors won't have that level of comfort uh, with the government numbers or projections. Um, so uh, often even creditors will want that um, analysis to be underpinning the negotiations. So, so in a way, what you're saying is, is the role of the IMF in this case would be to give comfort that, that, the, that the numbers that the government is giving about their, their ability to pay actually reflect a reasonable you know, approximation of ability to pay as opposed to a willingness to pay issue. Would that, would that be a fair way of, of summarizing it? Or? Yes, I, I think so. And, and I think they're also, they, uh, they also give comfort that the entire debt profile has been disclosed and everyone um, around the table, all creditors will understand, you know, who is actually owed money. Um, right. So they have that, um, the IMF plays a very important role in just ensuring that transparency and giving that comfort about the projections and you say the ability to pay 
and what are the actual stresses of the country, that the country is facing. Um, but we also have to remember that in many cases, the IMF is also a creditor to the country. Right. Uh, so they also have their own um, kind of... Uh, Conflict of interest. In exactly. I, I don't want to go so far as to say that, but they definitely have their own interests involved and, and things. And so to go back to your earlier question, what is the role of a sovereign advisor? you know, we don't have that conflict of interest. So although the IMF will often say it's an advisor to the country, it is also a creditor to the country. So the country themselves sometimes feels that they need some, a party sitting with them to help them in their own analysis and digesting the funds numbers, the creditors numbers and everything else so that they have, you know, that kind of pure trusted advisor on their side. Now, COVID, the COVID crisis has really led to an unprecedented set of circumstances. I mean, emerging markets were not only hit by, you know, the, the capital flight, but, but also a complete evaporation of cash flows for businesses. And the usual mechanisms of adjustment were absent, right? Because, you know, a currency can depreciate all you want. It's not going to increase competitiveness or increase export growth because external demand has evaporated. So it wasn't really surprising that a lot of particularly low-income countries struggled. Um, and, and, and so some adjustment to that, that service was, was inevitable. Now, what was interesting is that there was this G20 uh, initiative that was announced last year and, and, and to benefit, you know, the, I think, 75 Five-ish type of, uh, around 70, just over 70 countries, most of which are in Africa, low-income countries, and and that, you know, it's a G20-sponsored initiative that to promote a debt service suspension. You know, can you take us through the thinking about this initiative? I mean, how does it really differ from past debt relief initiatives? What you know, what what was the, the thinking behind it? I think one of the big challenges during this recent, uh, this current crisis is uh, the nature of the creditors. And that has changed over time. So in past crises, you had a lot of um, commercial banks and you had the bilateral creditors that were mainly uh, members of what is called the Paris Club. It was kind of the, the kind of G, G7, so to speak. Um, and in the current crisis, um, the governments that are facing difficulties have borrowed a lot from both the markets and from China and, and, and other uh, non-traditional creditor countries. So that also includes India, it includes uh, many Arab countries. And so the international community, the normal what we call the international financial architecture didn't work or wasn't really going to be um, appropriate for this crisis. So if we were gonna have a coordinated response uh, amongst creditor nations, we needed a new platform or a different platform that would include these other new non-traditional creditors. And that was naturally the G20, because in that group, you already had China, you had Saudi Arabia, you have India. Uh, and so it was, um, I think, uh, kind of 
it was already in existence and it was uh, an easy um, platform to use in order to try to bind those creditors together into a coordinated action. Um, is, is, this, is this basically the end of the Paris Club? Is this what we're witnessing? Yes and no. I mean, I think the Paris Club, the Paris Club for a very long time has recognized this problem that they don't, they don't have some of the big creditors in their club and they have been trying very actively to expand the club. Um, that has met with varied responses. Um, and I think in some ways using the G20 platform if they're using some of the knowledge and expertise of the Paris Club, it really almost achieves the same thing. Um, but we have yet to see how China is really going to respond um, to this. And they, being such a major new creditor, they have to figure out their own kind of internal policies of, of how they're going to cooperate with the rest of the rest of the world. Now, in terms of mechanism, though, what, what, what is it exactly that the G20 concretely proposed? And, you know, what is what, you know, what are the, you know, how, how do you see this is in, in terms of compared to other previous initiatives? How does it, does it fundamentally differ in, other, in some ways or, or not so much? Or, you know, what, what are the... Well, the, the initial um, kind of... Uh, program that they came out with on the G20 was the uh, Debt Service Suspension Initiative, the DSSI. And that was ambitious on the one hand because it was using this new platform of the G20, but it was quite a modest uh, you know, um, kind of response to, to what was going on in the world in the sense that the, that the, that the scope of the debt restructuring uh, was very limited. It was initially only for maturities falling due in 2020. They've since expanded it. And the, the kind of restructuring terms were also quite modest. Um, it also didn't have the bite of previous Paris Club um, agreements in the sense that there was not this kind of um, a, a requirement of comparability of treatment, which meant that, you know, it was optional if private sector creditors were going to participate, um, whereas in the past that was obligatory. Um, so the the first kind of step was quite modest. They've they've since kind of expanded that and and deepened it. And the same G20 has come up now with another um, response, which is called the Common Framework, which is getting closer to what we know from the past. Um, uh, from you know previous Paris Club and and other coordinated efforts of, in in past crises, so it, it it's it's a work in progress, um, and I think part of it is just to make sure that these non traditional creditors, particularly China, are on board and and participating fully. It, it will take time to develop. But you, you mentioned you mentioned the the optional participation of private creditors. Now, you know, official creditors can coordinate debt relief for some countries among themselves, but they can't really easily impose the same terms on private creditors, or, or can they? And, you know, how, you know, how are bond treated, bondholders treated, uh, really? What, you know, how much of that 
the 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 um, the adjustment that bondholders need to accept. How much of that is driven by the the official creditors, and how much of it is genuinely the negotiations that you know people like yourself help countries undertake. Again, we're kind of in a moment of change. If we look back in, in, to previous crises and Paris Club agreements, they used to kind of insist that private sector creditors kind of share the burden uh, on comparable terms. And so it was the obligation of the debtor country to seek the restructuring with private creditors, which used to be you know, commercial banks and it was you know what was called the London Club. Um, and then over time that started to include Euro bonds. So it would be trying to uh, encourage <laughs> or use their, their leverage to get debtor countries to seek restructurings with, with their bondholders. Um, now things are a little bit different because countries are funding themselves you know, very well in, in the private market. So the official sector, although they want to, <laughs> burden sharing across the board. They also don't want the markets to close to these countries. Um, so we're, we see this in the discussions right now at the G20 is that they're kind of encouraging private sector involvement, but they're not making it yet mandatory because at the same time, they see the markets are still open to these countries or to many countries, which is a good thing. So um, they're there's a balancing act right now, and we haven't really kind of seen the end of it. Now, part of it is just driven by whether the markets are going to be open to a, a particular country or if things have gotten so bad that that's closed, um, in which case the country will be forced on its own to sit down with its creditors to renegotiate. Um, and in which case the official sector, I think, will you know, want to have some say, again, through the IMF of how much burden <laughs> needs to be shared. You mentioned China earlier. Uh, their effort to internationalize and to increase their influence globally has meant that it's become, you know, they've become a key creditor to many low-income countries. So China's argued that most of the debt is commercially issued rather than official government debt. How have countries in Africa been managing the Chinese debt in general? I think pre-COVID, it was a very bilateral discussion. Um, so debtor countries, if they were in, in trouble or couldn't meet the terms of, of the loans, renegotiated with the Chinese entities on a very high level, very politicized level, um, and not particularly transparent to the rest of the market. Um, again, kind of in this kind of new era uh, that COVID has brought us, you, that's not gonna be, uh, it's not feasible for China to continue to do it on a kind of very closed book and non-transparent way um, bilaterally with each country. There's just too many countries going through distress at the same time. So they are having to figure out what is their policy um, and from the outside, we kind of think of China as just this one, one entity, almost like China Inc. Uh, but in, and, and we, I think, look at it from the outside and think, oh, well, all of these lending institutions and banks are all state owned. 
So they're all public sector and should be kind of considered that way. But that's not really the way that the Chinese think about it. And they make a very big distinction between their entities. And some do operate more as development partners and more kind of political um, actors, so to speak. And then some are much more commercial, uh, commercially oriented. And so I think that's where the, the rift right now in the communication and just kind of the definition of who's who uh, is happening. And you know, China is such a large creditor um, that they're going to have to go through their own process of figuring out their risk management. How do they figure out their exposure to countries? How are they going to um, participate and coordinate with other uh, lenders to these countries in a restructuring scenario. Um, and it's, it's not clear yet. And I think, like I said, I think we from the outside have different definitions than what they have. And so that's going to have to be a negotiation in itself of what is included and what is excluded, what is considered so, commercial or, uh, or not. It's, it, it's, it's hard looking from the outside not to look at China as one monolith, as China Inc., as you called it, because, because the activities of a lot of the, the Chinese state-owned banks in, in regions like Africa were, were driven in part by, by specifically, you know, by, by government, by strategic policies at, at the government level and and not just in Africa also in Asia a lot of the, the the lending taking place by China by Chinese entities really have to do with with a specific the, the, the belt and road initiative right so looking at it at the outside when you see a what's essentially a foreign policy uh, initiative uh, that is driving all of these lending then you, you have to think okay so well, you know th this is partly but under these circumstances, how you know what would be the consideration? How would we separate what's commercial, what's what's really what you call development assistance? When I think of development assistance, I think of concessional lending. But this isn't really concessional, is it? I mean, a lot of the terms are 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 commercial, or or am I? Or is but it I really... think that's where I think that's where it will come down to, and that's how we are going to have to figure out the definitions. So I agree in that a lot of the lending has been politically driven, but it comes down from the top and, and there's not a lot of communication between the entities. So the top says, okay, go out and, and lend to these countries and Belt and Road Initiative and, and, and they go out and um, look for projects and, and develop you know, and start lending. But China Development Bank is very different than China Exim Bank, um, and how and the terms of and conditions of their lending are going to be very different. And I think that's going to be the nuances as we start to develop a, a relationship and a coordinated uh, relationship with China. They're going to have to figure out how transparent are they going to be with the rest of the world. Uh, how much do they want to rely on? You know other institutions such as the IMF and before they said that they were going to do their own debt sustainability analysis and everything but what's interesting in the common framework is they seem to be indicating no they will rely on the analysis of the IMF now so I think it's going to be um, you know a process and there's going to be an iteration and figuring out well what are 
as you say, kind of development assistance and concessional lending and, you know, might have a different treatment than some of the commercial lending and then there's the securitization and all of these other issues as well. And, and so I think it's, it's going to take time to sort this out and, and China Inc., <laughs> the, pol yes. the policymakers are going to have to figure out um, what is their kind of, what is gonna be their policy uh, towards coordinating with other, other countries. And that, of course, is all part of a bigger, you know, issues with China and the U.S. and other, you know, EU and partners, and it's part of a whole other political and economic, you know, context. Yeah, but 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 listening to you, you you what, what you you know, what you're basically saying is that there probably isn't somebody uh, at China Inc. Whether it is in at the Ministry of Finance or at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that has a, you know, an Excel sheet somewhere that aggregates uh, China, you know, the Chinese public, the exposure of the Chinese financial institutions to a Sri Lanka or a Zambia or a, an Angola or... From what I understand, there isn't, and there is an attempt to try to start to create that. Uh, kind of global view, but that has been kind of lacking to date. Um, and it's been a concern from all parties, I think the, the debtor countries sure. as well as, as Chinese authorities, um, not to mention the IMF and, and everyone else. Um, but I don't think that they have had necessarily a coordinated, internally a coordinated view of their total exposure. Um, and I think when a crisis like COVID hits, it starts to show the vulnerabilities of not having such a view. Um, and, and I think that there is this realization on the Chinese authorities part that they need to have, that they're going to have to develop that view. And they're also going to have to coordinate with others and maybe use some of the tools and technologies that have been developed over years in from previous crises. Hence their kind of willingness, I think, to participate in the G20 and the common framework and all of these uh, new initiatives coming up. Understood. Now, look, you know, stepping um, maybe away from, from the question of debt restructuring and looking at what happened over, over the past year, in, in particular in Sub-Saharan Africa, but, but also um, elsewhere, um, debt service suspension is, is, is one thing, but, but faced with capital flight and dwindling reserves, a lot of countries introduced capital controls or tightened capital controls. Um, and, and, and this has taken a lot of equity investors in particular uh, uh, by, you know, caught them off guard. <laughs> it all was very quick. In, in part, you know, I think you understand the rationale under extreme urgency. In part, there is a bit of a, a, a more, you know, less negative view of, of capital controls at the IMF. What are your thoughts? You know, how much, how much of, the, the, this question of, of imposition of capital controls, how much is it tied up with, with, the, with the debt service initiative? How, you know, how can the two issues be delinked? And, and what should investors, how should investors think about, you know, the exit from this? 
Well, I think the IMF started softening its view on capital controls during the global financial crisis in 2009. They started really seeing the effect of, of you know, kind of hot money or capital immediately leaving a country and destabilizing uh, already a, a vulnerable situation. So I think they started to kind of take a different view. Um, and I think for uh, the for equity investors, it's important to kind of understand the whole picture, the whole picture of a country, particularly when you're in these frontier markets. Um, and uh, it's important to understand um, their debt portfolios, uh, the depth of their domestic markets, um, because again, a lot of these countries have been developing domestic capital markets, but they're still very thin. And in some cases they have opened it up to you know, foreign investors, um, but they can't afford to have them leave overnight. So <laughs> they will uh, try to kind of control that um, in times of crisis. And so I think for an equity investor, they, they, it's very important to just understand the context uh, of, of the country and of the region and some of the vulnerabilities that, that may, uh, may occur in times of crises, whether that crisis is internally driven or from external, such as the pandemic. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Because, because you, know, you, you understand the reason for introducing capital controls under extreme stress scenarios, but then, but then how, do you, how do you start removing them? And, and, and the longer you keep them, the more likely you are deterring potential future investment, right? I mean, the, the, you're not going to get foreign investment <laughs> unless the the foreigners are able to extract their the return on their investment, right? And, and 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 is this? I mean, is any of this? You know, how how is it? How well is it tied into the discussion on on the debt or or? Should we should we assume if a country has restructured its debt, they can move very quickly in removing capital controls, or or you know is there a, a link there, or 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 not so much? It's driven by by other things. I mean, I think for the for the countries themselves as they're experiencing the stress, I mean, they have to, as you said, there's a trade-off between trying to keep a, a country you know and stable. Uh, and as well as keeping it friendly for foreign investment. And so there's, there's this, um, it's always a kind of tension and a debate in, in these situations of- and Particularly okay, for equity, right? Because this is non-debt non creating investment that they, that they actually need, right? No, precisely. And you, and you want to attract that, that investment and in, in capital and interest in the country and, and, and develop projects and businesses and that's what they want to promote so I I you know I, th I think that most countries would want to kind of loosen you know any controls as as quickly as they can but at the same time to kind of keep the <laughs> keep it uh, as stable as possible as well they just don't want massive swings uh, in or out um, so I think I think that's, um, and I and I think for an equity investor, you just have to like really just in these 
more volatile markets and, and frontier markets, you just really have to have a kind of sophisticated, nuanced view of what's going on in the country. Indeed, or or more often is just, uh, unfortunately, I think for a lot of countries which are, uh, you know, potentially have very highly promising, all of this means is, is you know, uh, from an asset allocation perspective is that is that we end up managing the risk by keeping the allocations very, very low. Thank you, Jill, for taking the time. Um, it's always a pleasure to exchange ideas with you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.